Hello and welcome to the weekend wrap for the week on Wednesday. It is Sunday, the 19th of June, 2022, and it is a beautiful, if cold, winter's day here where I am. But of course, it is made all the warmer by the presence of the great, the glorious, <laughs> the sunshine in my heart. I am the sunshine in your heart. Van Vadim. How are you, Van? Well, I, I live with you, so you know I am quite well, although I'm a little hoarse this morning. Me! Um, and I am nursing our extremely cute dog who is cold and wants a warming cuddle. Yes, indeed. It is great to have you with us on the weekend wrap. A rare and delightful treat. Of course, you will have to rush off because you've got to get to the Willy Festival. No, Ben, I am not going to a Willy Festival. I am going to the Willy Lit Festival, which is the Williamstown Literary Festival. Right, right. Which is for writers to talk about writing, not about the disgusting things that you are assuming. Well, yes, so mine's out of the gutter there, listeners. Uh, The Willy Lit Festival (laughs) on this afternoon in Williamstown, where Van will, of course, be talking about her book QAnon and On, a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults. And thank you to all the listeners of the show who've come to see me in places like Beechworth and Umina and Queenscliff and all the other fabulous places I've visited recently. It's always really great to connect with listeners of the show who've also read my book. Love it. Yes, we had a very uh, unusual circumstance yesterday where somebody actually asked me to sign it as well. I know. <laughs> I was very chuffed. Well, I couldn't have written it without you, my darling. You well, know. I did very little. But, of course, the weekend wrap is a short podcast, so let's get straight into it. There's been Lots of things happened since Van and I last spoke on Wednesday. Of course, one of the big pieces of reform that's been announced uh, was the New South Wales and Victorian governments announcing a joint committee on early childhood education. Now, this is a good sign and a step certainly in the right direction. Lots of positive positive commentary about this. But Van, there are some key differences here. Uh, And can you guess which one has a more private sector market approach and which one has a more government-led approach? Oh, (laughs) could the Liberal government be pushing a private sector approach and the Labor government be pushing a public sector approach? Yeah, you've absolutely nailed it. Oh, gosh, amazing. I mean, listeners of this show will be shocked. I tell you, shocked. It is interesting, though, isn't it? It's worth discussing this subject because... One, my contempt for people who say Liberal Labor just the same is without limits, really. And this is really a tale of two cities and how two ideological systems function very differently in the provision of services. It really is. And it'll be interesting to see over time what the different outcomes actually are because we're starting to see the impacts of different approaches between Labor and Liberal in all sorts of areas. But this is an area where there is a joint committee to work together in the implementation of improving and expanding access to early childhood education. But the details are different. So in Victoria, we're talking about free kindergarten for for all, uh, th- 30 hours of pre-prep early childhood education, which is up from a current 15-hour provision, in Victoria, so that's double the amount of pre-prep, and the construction and establishment of 50 government-run early childhood and childcare centres. That's quite a substantial investment in a government-provided, a bit like 
state school primaries, right? State primary schools. It's essentially an expansion of that. Victoria has also announced that most of, if not all of those 50 centres will be co-located with primary schools. So the kind of multiple drop-offs that a lot of parents have to try and do in a morning will be limited by, by that. So you only have to go to one place as opposed to two or three. Now, in New South Wales, there's a much heavier tilt towards the private sector. So there'll be a $2,000 per child uh, service fee or reimbursement paid directly to privatised centres, and that's based on how many hours the child does. So it's not in Victoria, they're talking about 30 hours and it's funded. In New South Wales, they're talking about a subsidy up to $2,000 based on how many hours, and that's variable according to each family. Uh, And they will fund uh, what they're calling 47,000 private sector places in uh, early childhood education centres. Now, I should say there is an element here of additional subsidies for sending children to public sector centres as well, and there are many of those in New South Wales. It's not as though New South Wales has totally privatised this sector. I mean, give them a chance. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they haven't been in, they've only been in government 10 years or so. Yeah, government, government's a list of priorities, but you know. <laughs> but there is certainly a heavier lean towards the private sector delivering these services in New South Wales and a heavier lean towards the public sector delivering them in Victoria. Now, these things will be rolled out over many years. We're talking 2023 start date for some of these programs. We're talking about 2025 for some of the construction elements. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, where we are in 2030, the outcomes that actually come from this. Will there be a, a marked difference in the outcomes for families, for the children that go through these processes in different states. Yes, they will, because families in New South Wales will still be paying fees. I want everybody to look at precedent around this and around how private sector or public sector approaches work with the provision of services. We were told that Australian taxpayers like me who have no children and send no children to education should hand over tax, like our taxation revenue to fund private schools in the secondary, yeah. in the primary and secondary system in order to keep fees low. Right? We were told this, that we would mass subsidise private school places because supposedly private school students take pressure off the public system somehow by hoovering up all their resources and concentrating them and that this would this would keep fees low. The government had to subsidise these places or fees would be out of control. Well, there are articles all the time about fees being out of control. Absolutely. In fact, private schools use it as a way of leveraging ever more money out of the public purse by saying, oh, well, if you don't give us more public money, our fees will happen to go up, right? And so now we have private schools that have wellness centres and rowing tanks and the most absolutely outrageous, all of our buildings were designed by architects. This is what money gets spent on. And yet we're constantly told if people like me don't pay for it, oh, you know, these fees will be out of control. So let's just apply that to early childhood education because that's the same principle that's being pursued by the Liberals in New South Wales. As opposed to in Victoria where it's like everyone gets it, you know, this is an entitlement it will be paid for by government, you have free access. Like you don't have to make up the stopgap, which is what you're expected to do in New South Wales. So people will still be paying for childcare in New South Wales and they won't in Victoria. We know what this means. We know that 
kids from marginalised backgrounds, kids who might be living in economically marginalised circumstances, culturally marginalised circumstances, will get a better start in life because they will have the same educational access and opportunity as everybody else. We know there are long-term health, well-being, and positive economic outcomes from the more early childhood education you do as a child. All yep. of these things. There are better nutritional outcomes. And look, they discussed on Insiders today, and we'll talk more about uh, how what Insiders talked about later on. But uh, they did talk about you know how much more progressive New South Wales was becoming, and you know repositioning itself, and Dominic Perrottet doing all these things to try and you know reestablish trust in the Liberal Party brand. And actually, what I'm seeing here, because it, uh, there's been another announcement this morning about changing. Uh, the education system in primary and secondary schools as well in New South Wales, and in trying to introduce performance pay oh, and and so American, yeah, and pre, it's just so American. And pre and post, uh, pre and post school activities. It's not very clear what that's supposed to be, uh, but it is a very American style of system, and and it doesn't work. And the Teachers Federation has made the, exactly that point. It doesn't work. Performance pay doesn't lead to better outcomes, but really. You know, we've talked about this on the show a lot recently, but actually what I'm seeing in New South Wales is Dominic Perrottet and Matt Keane reverting to the Menzian template, going, actually, what we need to do is remind people that we have uh, conservative economic values and uh, smaller liberal values and free markets and free people, and that's our kind of core boilerplate, not the kind of culture wars and climate wars and all the other things that Abbott, Morrison, Turnbull. Yeah, we're not going to use the American political playbook around culture wars. We're going to use the American political playbook around economic policy. Here's some news. Both are disastrous. Yeah. And, I mean, you're more it's, than- it's, it's Reaganism rather than Trumpism, right? It is Reaganism rather than Trumpism. That is brilliant. Thank you, Ben. This is why I <laughs> to spend the rest of my life with you. That is exactly what's going on. And we know that that model doesn't work. If they were going back to the Menzian template, do you know what they would be doing? Funding public infrastructure. That's yeah. actually what Menzies did. Because Menzies knew that he could take control of the system by creating an establishment around it. You know, universities have this reputation or used to of, you know, creating student radicals. That hasn't been true for quite some time, although you do get the occasional one. But Menzies um Menzies realised that, I mean, there were massive investments in public education under Menzies because it meant that the conservatives could create a conservative and smaller liberals could create an establishment of people who held their values who were implicitly tied to the state. And, of course, the modern neoliberal era, which is the past 40 years where it's all about free market economics and vouchers and performance-based pay, this is not Menzian. And I can and I can tell you from from my perspective that performance based pay was uh, something that was introduced in the corporate sector, Reagan in the sort of Reagan era, right? Like it came about as a we're going to have performance based pay, and this will keep executives honest, and they'll own, you know the, the wage explosions that we saw in executive pay in the early eighties will be mediated by performance-based pay. And I can tell you that the opposite has happened. Performance-based pay doesn't result in in a, a kind of uh, performance link to pay. It results in fiddling with the KPIs to meet performance. Yeah, That's what happens in the business sector. And in the, in the, in the public sector, when you have performance-based pay, you actually 
drive perverse outcomes because people go, well, in order to get the salary I need that I've banked on to to live, I've got to meet these KPIs and only these KPIs. And that becomes very, very narrow cast. For those of you who may not be involved in a governance or strategic planning uh, situation, KPIs are key performance indicators. Yeah. And, you know, like a, a board or leadership group established them based on strategic priorities and everybody competes to meet them in a performance-based pay scenario. One of the other outcomes of performance-based pay around this model is that you get absolutely out of control benchmarking around things like bonuses. Yeah. And that's what happened in the corporate sector where you see, you know, corporate mediocrities who do meet their KPIs getting these outrageous bonuses that aren't really tied to any improved outcome, just hitting a set of arbitrary criteria. And then, of course, everybody else in the sector starts demanding um, comparable remuneration as well. And that's how you end up in situations where you have CEOs that are paid, what, 400 times what employees are. What we'll see in in teaching and what they've seen in teaching isn't that there's a, a a positive pay spiral, it's actually used to restrict pay by creating KPIs that are unmeetable, creating KPIs that actually require inputs from others or other parts of government to help facilitate meeting those KPIs that are not then delivered. So resources, and you can imagine in a situation where there are uh, children from low socioeconomic backgrounds or from other forms of disadvantaged backgrounds who form part of the KPI, it's not always just the teacher who can meet that KPI. And this is where performance-based pay is really, really sketchy because you'll find that well-resourced schools that have, uh, you know, lots of resources, facilities, teachers. And children with middle-class parents. Children with middle-class parents they will probably meet those KPIs quite easily, whereas schools in more disadvantaged areas, schools where there aren't resources, schools where the parents are are essentially uh, having either working poor or or out of work or infrequently in work, they will really struggle to meet KPIs. So there's a real danger in setting up performance pay in exacerbating the gap. And then, of course, what does that do? That means that teachers will absolutely clamour to go to the schools where there's more resources, which already happens. We know that already happens. You'd much rather teach in an environment where you're going to get to teach than have to act as a sort of pseudo warden. That's not something people want to do. And it's not something we should be forcing people to do by under-resourcing our schools. And I, I want to be very clear. I mean, there are schools that meet really complex and specific community needs yeah. that need a lot more support than the private schools who have Minerva centres and, you know, meditation retreats for their students. We learned yesterday about a school in Victoria where the, in one senior year, more than half the kids there have witnessed an act of grievous bodily harm and or murder. Yeah. And, I mean, those kids deserve obviously intersectional, you know, like robust support. Yeah. And that doesn't just come from a teacher. That comes from social workers and that comes from, you know, counsellors and that comes from all kinds of different 
I mean, we've got to carry those kids through. Kids who've been exposed to violence it have have special needs. Yeah. That that uh, that contributing partners in a sector need to meet. And performance based pay based on what like all my kids got straight A's. If I could get a kid to minimise their suicidal ideations in the aftermath of trauma, yeah. that would be like a massive achievement as a teacher or an educational professional. But KPIs don't tend to meet that. No, and I think it's also important to note that we are currently in a skills crunch. We're continually told we lack certain trades, we, we need more people to do certain trades. Well, setting up our education system to further um, remove the concept that actually doing a skilled trade, doing an apprenticeship is worthwhile and valuable and can set you up for a an important contribution to society and our economy by having performance-based pay, which will inevitably be and has always been about getting people to finish year 12, um, is, is really counterproductive to what we need. And talking about skills, you know, Anthony Albanese has given some interviews today uh, about what's going to be on the agenda for parliament and kind of mapped out what we can expect to see. And the reason I bring up skills is that in the first sitting week, which will be in the last week of July, the establishment of Jobs and Skills Australia, which was which is a key plank in Labor's rebuilding and reskilling Australia, setting this uh, body up will be one of the first three pieces of legislation that Labor intends to introduce, as well as climate change uh, targets, so emissions reduction targets, and the establishment of 10 days paid family and domestic violence leave for all workers and employees in Australia. And the reason I say workers and employees is that, of course, if you're not an employee, the national employment standards, the minimum standards, don't currently apply to you. That is, if you're on an ABN or you're a contractor. But we know that Labor wants to make moves in the space for more people who are currently in what you and I would call sham contracting arrangements, mm. uh, which will probably fall under the definition of employee-like to become employees. So this will have huge impact Amazing for millions impact. of people. Yep. Lots of people. We know that overwhelmingly the people who suffer family domestic violence, uh, family domestic violence are women. Uh, we know overwhelmingly that they, when it happens, they lose income, they lose uh, housing security, uh, they obviously uh, become incredibly uh, financially insecure. Well, they have to go through a, an enormous number of uh, legal loopholes just to protect themselves. So say you are, you know, why didn't she leave? Well, she needed to establish she could find somewhere to live. She needed to establish protection for her children. She needed to get a number of um, legal decisions made in her favour to stop her abusive partner from being able to just come and take her children. You know, all of these things – I did an article a couple of years ago about how in the state of Victoria you essentially needed seven court orders to make yourself safe once you left an abusive relationship. And you can't do that if you're working full-time. Yeah. Like you you physically can't organise those kind of meetings and support yourself in any concrete way. So domestic violence leave is literally the opportunity for people to get out of dangerous situations without being punished for leaving. I think it's fantastic and I think it shows the priorities of the Albanese government right up front. The first three pieces of legislation are going to be uh, 
legislating emissions targets, uh, reductions, uh, legislating around uh, women, particularly women's uh, participation and security, economic security, uh, and how we continue to build the capacity of our nation through jobs and skills. You know, when you think about the the framework of what a Labor government is going to deliver, these things are, are so fundamental. Oh, the emissions reduction target of 43% is, I, I cannot underline how important this is because I'm sure there are people like, oh, why isn't 100%? Yeah, that's yeah. not how economies work. Um, and the idea that they have managed to get a multi-stakeholder agreement, environmentalists were in that room, ACF was there, yep. um, uh, business was in the room, AIG were there, Innis Willex almost smiling. And, you know- Somebody f- did comment on my social media- that he didn't look very happy. And I said, actually, that that is Innes's happy face. So yeah. I can vouch for that. You yeah. know, all that money, all that capitalist power, and yet it never makes them happy. That's a subject for investigation. <laughs> anyway, um, unions were in the room like this is the kind of bedrock. And, yes, more ambition is possible and we should have more ambition. Sure. But getting everyone to agree to 43% by 2030 is fantastic. Well, 2030, we have to remember, is now, you know, in Seven and a half years away. You know, it's not, it's not that far away. So, to go from the the target, essentially almost doubling the target. Remember, the target was twenty two, twenty three percent, and and that was an Abbott era target. So, we've almost doubled the target, uh, and we've only got seven years left to achieve it. It is a big step, and there were multiple stakeholders in that room, and of course, Labor has said that if more can be done then we'll do more this is what we're this is what we're committed to and just going back to the sort of previous point people need to think about targets for what they are they're targets they're not this is what we're going to do then stop and of course labor does have a net zero target by 2050 as well so to say we're going to get to uh, 43% reduction by 2030, and we still have a net zero target beyond that, it doesn't mean we're going to get to 43% in, say, 2028 and go, okay, let's start burning more coal. It means no, we're um, going to go, great, we've hit that. Now let's adjust. What do we need? What's our next point before we get to net zero? What's the point beyond that? And something that Labor governments understand from their histories in government is the importance of momentum. Absolutely. Like you actually have to start somewhere in order to build up a social and economic and cultural consensus around greater ambition. Getting the likes of AIG on board for that 43% and facilitating a means by which corporate Australia who are responsible for the actual infrastructure of emissions, getting them on board with that is unbelievably important because you start as you mean to go on. You know, this is an ambition that's double what it was under Abbott and the rest of them um, that creates a target and a framework by which everybody's on the same page and makes greater ambition possible. I look forward to having discussions with multi-stakeholders, well, not me personally. (laughs) I'm going to leave it to 
at Chris Bowen because he's doing a hell of a job so far, but in two years where we can revisit this target and see if greater action is possible and see how the different stakeholders who make up the infrastructure of, yeah. you know, emissions and policy can work together for greater ambition. But this sort of all or nothing gamble that, you know, yeah. people who don't have the responsibility of government sometimes try to to push, that actually generally results in total stagnation. And it's and it's really, I think, so important to realise that this is how government works. This is how you govern. You bring people together, you work through the issues, you look at what people are willing to do, how you can how you can get them to do more in achieving the kind of targets and goals and the outcomes that people want to see and you and you work through it and you continually work through it. You don't go, oh, we've signed the document and now it's on a shelf and we don't do anything, which seems like what the Morrison government did. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of pulling back the covers and finding an absolute mess. But I want to get on to some of the other points here because Albo has also said that the budget will be on the uh, 25th of October. After the budget, there'll be a federal ICAC uh, put to the parliament before the end of the year. Uh, and by the end of September, start of October, there'll be this National Employment Summit, which again is bringing stakeholders into the room to work through the problems that we have. And the government, the, the the Commonwealth Government of Australia, which sounds like such a strange thing for me to be able to say after the last decade, but the Commonwealth Government of Australia wants there to be wage growth, wants there to be improvements in bargaining systems, uh, and wants there to be more job security as outcomes of this summit. Unheard so, of. <laughs> so, But it's bringing people together again, right? So it's actually working through as a nation, doing the hard work, doing the policy work, not making proclamations from on high, not putting things in the too hard basket, not burying them in a department and hoping nobody ever finds them. Or just not doing anything and letting the building fall down, which is how they've been dealing with arts policy for the past 10 years. So it's, I think it's a remarkable shift. Uh, and to see Elbow in advance come out in June and say, this is what to expect from us in July, in September, in October, between now and the end of the year, you know, not about political positioning, but about giving people some certainty and some surety that the government has an agenda. That agenda is about improving jobs, improving job security, improving the participation and access to the economy for women, about making sure we're enshrining targets into law, all the things that people expect, right? It's so reassuring and, and it gives you such a sense of, oh, actually, someone who cares is in charge of running the country. Yeah, it is. It's it's genuinely Hawkean. Yeah. Uh, which is interesting. Like the, the analysis has been made in other quarters that, you know, if the Liberals want to get their mojo back, the mothership is the Menzies government. Yeah. And Labor, in order to maintain a parliamentary majority, has to be Hawkean. And that means collaborative, looking for opportunities to create for people within the economy and really refocusing on that Hawkean sense of aspiration that everybody gets a part in this. There are opportunities for everyone, particularly small business when it comes to Labor government. And the idea that this schedule has been put in place, we're all going to talk about it. We're going to speak to stakeholders about what the economy is going to look like, how we can do this, how we can do that. That is the traditional Hawkean model. Um, and it is 
Look, it, it's. I, I think I speak for a lot of people where I feel sort of really overwhelmed. Like I haven't been tweeting that much recently. I'm tweeting more about American news <laughs> because I'm just not in a perpetual outrage cycle going, what is the visceral horror of revelation that's going to be visited on the Australian people by the actions of their government today? It's all very constructive and positive <laughs> and based in the labour values that I well, agree with, egalitarianism, opportunity, you know, you know well, infrastructure building. I'm like, what is going on? Well, Van. And it's, it's an interesting segue because, of course, Peter Dutton, who is the leader of the opposition. Ah, yes, Van didn't watch Insiders <laughs> this morning and this would be why. Uh, because Peter Dutton was their, their key interviewee. Uh, and, of course, they talked about a range of other things. They talked about, um, uh, as I mentioned. His earlier, amazing human rights record. Well, no. No, no, no. <laughs> No, no. Insiders, insiders talked about other things. They talked about the minimum wage rise, which of course happened this week, uh, and and is sparked from the business side as well as the union side a debate around well, how do we get wages moving, uh, and what do we do about bargaining for the seventy five percent of people who are not uh, in uh, covered by awards? I don't think the business people who made those comments quite meant to do it. I think they got caught a bit off guard when they were slagging out the award system and then they got asked, well, what should we do instead? And they said, well, we should fix bargaining. And I think everybody went, well, yeah, we should fix bargaining. Yeah, that's You're right. Idea. We're on board. Thank you. <laughs> well, I'm up for a bit of multi-stakeholder engagement around the issue of improved opportunities to bargain. That's great. As it turns out, is the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry. Well done. Um, but, you know, insiders obviously had all those conversations, but they did interview Peter Dutton who just people are online saying he just refuses to take responsibility for anything that oh, happened. Oh no, they're blaming Labor for all of the problems <laughs> that they spent nine years creating, which I just find it's I mean remarkable. it's a bold gambit. <laughs> it's a bold What gambit. are Labor gonna do about it? It's like, well, they've been in government for 15 minutes, you know. Yeah. Like they're still looking for the keys to the photocopy room, but they've made a pretty bold and impressive start. It's it's a it's a bizarre, it was a bizarre interview where Peter Dutton lurched from um, it's all Labor's fault, Labor's not doing enough. David Spears was actually pretty good, I thought. I thought he actually held Dutton to some account and said, well, you had nine years, you, you rolled a prime minister over energy policy, you, you didn't actually put any extra supply into the system. There were blackouts and load shedding while you're in power that hasn't been under Labor, how can you say Chris Bowen is not doing the job? Oh, well, he's a bunny in the headlights. It's like, really? Because he's actually, he's actually kept the lights on, whereas under Dutton's previous government, uh, they were occasionally flicked off. Um, so it was a, a remarkable performance. You know, I've observed Chris Bowen's career for some time and – Bunny in the headlights are, are not words that I'd use to describe him. No. Like fastidious workaholic, maybe, <laughs> but bunny in the head, that's really odd. Look, the whole interview it's was like, very I odd. don't like that, man. He is made of toast and Lego. Yeah, you know, it's completely incomprehensible. There was, there was a whole range of things that Dutton said uh, that he continues to kind of push the, the, the old conflict model of the Morrison era on. Obviously, energy policy is one. He talked about gas. We should be really clear here about gas. There is no question that Australia produces more than enough gas for ourselves, but we export huge amounts of it into international markets for profit for private corporations. 
<laughs> and that's the reality. So when Dutton talks about gas and we need to open up more gas. Wasn't it Greg Combay spearheading a massive reserve our gas campaign from memory and several unions? Yeah, absolutely. You know, that it's quite a labour side of politics issue to reserve gas for actual Australians to actually use. And the AWU uh, and other unions have been very active on this. And, of course, you know, all of these issues that we've talked about, whether you're an early childhood educator, a teacher, uh, whether you're, uh, you know, working in family domestic violence, whether you're working in environmental uh, preservations or or an emissions-heavy industry or an emissions-reducing industry, uh, whether you're doing skills in TAFE, there are a union for you. There are unions you can join. Oh, you should join a union. Go to australianunions.org.au slash Wow, that's W-O-W. You can join your union today and be covered when you get to work tomorrow. And it, it's a great time to join a union because now is your chance to be part of the active stakeholder decisions by having union representatives who are in the corridors of conversation, influence and power making a case on your behalf. And, of course, Peter Dutton has already uh, attacked unions. He oh, no way. He didn't do it in his interview today, but he's done it uh, He's done it since he's become opposition leader. Today he, I mean, he went on such a, a random range of things. He changed the policy, the coalition's policy on voice. So they've gone from opposing the voice to maybe we'll look at it uh, to making it contingent on um, doing something. Uh, he didn't make clear what about child sexual abuse in Indigenous communities, which I tweeted from the Week on Wednesday account uh, that, that his own government in 2020 was unable to produce evidence uh, that, that, that there is a, a more substantial issue uh, around that in Indigenous communities. It seemed to me to be a, an attempt to deflect the debate into a culture war once again, that somehow or another uh, the bulk of Australians should be outraged about what's going on in these communities when actually it's not clear that that is what's going on. But, of course, it's a convenient thing for Dutton to deflect away from what Indigenous communities are saying they want, which is the voice to Parliament. Um, you know, he just he just went on. He he of course uh, attacked the minimum wage decision. Uh, he remains opposed to raising Reality. wages. Yeah. He believes the inflation crisis is you know going to be worse under Labor because of all these things. Let's be really clear here, Van. Inflation. We've talked about this a lot. Yeah, it is a big issue. Uh, Obviously, the cost of living is is hugely impactful for many, many people. Wages only impact inflation when wage growth is greater than inflation plus productivity. Now, the increase- Inflation plus productivity. productivity. So not just one or the other, you've got to have both. That's right. And if wage growth is less than that, then it is not inflationary. What we've seen is that for a long time, wage growth has been at or less than just productivity or inflation. Now, the minimum wage increase will not be inflationary, despite all the doomsayers, despite the Peter Dutton interview, despite all the rest of it. I am doom and I have this to say about the economy. Exactly. Despite the crying cafe owner who was on Channel 7 or Channel 9 or Channel whatever, it the reality is that inflation in this country is being driven by business. 
and the poor decisions of certain executives in large numbers of companies. So when money was cheap, did they invest in more production, more productive capacity, better skills, better training, building. infrastructure? No. They invested, invested in inverted commas, in share buybacks, which just gives investors more money. They invested in record dividends, which just gives investors more money. They invested in executive bonuses, which just gives themselves more money. The profiteering- Performance-based pay, Ben, please. <laughs> the profiteering that has occurred over the last particularly five years has been outrageous. And during the pandemic, you know, everybody saw the articles- billionaires richer than ever before, all the rest of it. A lot of it was paper-based money, right? It was just, it was numbers on a page. It wasn't real. And what's happening is that inflation is biting because of the poor decision-making, because of the decision to make our supply chains for things like toilet paper globally integrated, to make it so that if you want to buy building materials in Australia, you've got to get pine from Ukraine. Some of these decisions are driven by profit and profit motive, not about supply, not about what's in the interests of consumers or citizens or commonwealths of people, but around the profit and the bonuses of companies and the individual executives who benefit from them. Are you talking about fat for fat cats? Fat for fat cats. That's why we have an inflation crisis, not just in this country, but in most of the Western world, because for so long, lazy, incompetent, greedy executives have been skimming the milk from the, from skimming the cream from the milk, I should say, of our economy. Can you tell we're dog people, not cat people? We're not brilliant <laughs> with the cat metaphors. We can sort of get there at the at the first instance, but not really extend it beyond that. They are skimming the fat, the cream from the <laughs> But they have been. And and Oh, they absolutely have. And now working people are being asked to carry the can through increased interest rates, which for the one third ten dollar letters. For the one third of Australians who have a mortgage, those increased interest rates will bite hard. For one third of Australians who already own their own home and perhaps are relying on their superannuation, they will probably see some improvement in their term deposits. That's good for them. And for the third of Australians who are renters, all they're really seeing is increased costs across the board. The people who benefit most from increased interest rates and decreasing inflation are the people who already have large amounts of money. The system is set up. Are you calling large amounts of money capital and insinuating that we live in a capitalist economy? That's right. The, the protection of capital is done through the manipulation of interest rates. We don't call it manipulation when the Reserve Bank does it. We call it the setting of interest rates. Setting and manipulation are essentially the same thing. Um, break a finger and then ask the physio if there's a difference between setting your finger or manipulating it back into place. Those things are the same. <laughs> Trust me. How um, many fingers have you broken? Too many. That's what's happening. That's what the Reserve Bank is doing. The Reserve Bank is protecting the value of capital by limiting inflation. Now, don't get me wrong. There are good reasons to do that as well. But at the moment, at the moment, what we're seeing is the Reserve Bank feeling the need to do that to protect the value of capital 
at a time when capital has already extracted so much benefit from the economy. Profits are at a record record level compared to wages. As a proportion of our economy, profits have never had more of what we produce than they do now. Wages have never had less. This is the economic reality that the Albanese government is having to wrestle with. This is why we need an employment summit. This is why we have to change bargaining rules. This is why we have to improve the job security of working people because a decade and more of undermining job security, of attacking unions, of smashing up people's collective power to raise wages and extract their value from what they produce has resulted in this incredibly unbalanced economy where even when capital is profitable, even when they've got more than they've ever had, they still need, they still need government through the Reserve Bank to intervene to protect capital and reduce inflation. That's that's my uh, fact-based and ideological lens applied to what's happening. Wages need to go up. There's no question. Productivity is up. Inflation is up. If wages don't go up, working people cop it twice. They cop it through interest rate increases and they cop it through declining buying power because their wages are going backwards. $10 letter. And it's time for it to end. It is. It's time for it to end. Thank God we've got a Labor government. (laughs) Thank God we've got a Labor government. Speaking of it being time to end, that's the end of the weekend wrap. I do like to have a rant on a Sunday. I love it. This is why I live with you. I love your Sunday rants. I'm just so glad we now record them because it used to be just my privilege. I'd be like, oh, he's so intelligent. He knows so much about the economy. I could just listen to him put a socialist lens on modern economics all day. And now we, I get to share the joy. Being a socialist, that's what we do. And we collectivise the fun. <laughs> and, of course, thanks to people supporting this podcast, liking, sharing, commenting, leaving reviews on Apple. Uh, and, From and, each according to their ability to each according to their need. Thank you. And those who do have the ability uh, to contribute to our Buy Me A Coffee, that's www.buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday. Those contributions have allowed us to expand our, our listener base and, and the people who are subjected to my rants on a Sunday, as well as the very informative discussions that we have on Wednesdays. If you are in Williamstown, get along uh, about 4.30, 5 o'clock this afternoon. No, it's 4.30 I start. 4.30 you 4:30 start. 4.30 I start. I will be announcing myself to the room. Where is it in Williamstown? Uh in Williamstown, it is actually said frantically reaching you can, for You can diary. look it up. At the I Willi- have tweeted about it. It's at the town hall. At the town hall in Williamstown. Check it out. Uh, otherwise, 104 Ferguson Street. There you go. Otherwise, don't forget to tune in to Van and I on Wednesday, where we may be doing an on the road uh, week on Wednesday. Uh, we've got a few things on, so we may be uh, we may be in a secret location yet to be announced when we do the week on Wednesday this week. Until then, remember to be kind to yourself and to each other. Ben, you're the best. Bye. Bye.